Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter, as we begin reading in chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Please be seated. My wife and I came from very different family backgrounds. I grew up in a Christian home, as I've mentioned before. My dad was a pastor as well. So as a result, we were at church all of the time. My parents are still married and uh, will be celebrating 50 years of marriage very soon. And so I would say as a whole, I had a very blessed childhood that I am thankful for. My wife, on the other hand, didn't grow up in a Christian home. Her parents were divorced when she was in high school, and I would say there was a level of disorder throughout her childhood. So when we were dating and then soon married, she thought, as she met my family, that my family was something of the Brady Bunch, the iconic family. Well, I have to tell you that the longer that she has been married to me and the more that she has been around my family... She realizes that not all that is gold glitters, or all that glitters is golden. That there are some definite problems in my family like her own. And I think that is true of every family. Every family has problems. Some obviously more than others, but they are all there. So I like to say that there are always a few nuts in every cookie. And that is true with all of our families, is it not? And I think this experience is something that we can liken to the experience of the church. Perhaps when you were newly saved, you thought the church was the the greatest place on planet earth. A place where you belonged, a place where you could meet God and and receive from him and, and to receive from one another and Everything was wonderful. It was the happiest place on earth. But then the more you got involved with the church, you realized that there was real issues. You realized that not all Christians act Christianly all the time. Sometimes there is just downright sin and sinfulness. And sadly, There are times where there are things in the church that are not much different than things in the world. And this can come as a shock. This can even be problematic. I think that uh, Satan uses this 
in the lives especially of new converts and likes to whisper in their ears, say, see, there's nothing really different about them. There's nothing really different about the church. And as a result, it casts doubt and one's salvation and definitely in the church as a whole. And people begin to think that the church is not the place that they thought it would be or perhaps they were even told that it would be for them. And so there is a large segment of our society that is now called de-churched, not unchurched, but de-churched. Those that just don't attend oftentimes because they feel like they have been burnt out by the church or have been so hurt or injured. And so in our new members class, which I'm conducting right now, I try to preemptively strike and tell the entire class that Smyrna Presbyterian Church is not a perfect church. And if you're looking for a perfect church, you will be disappointed. But then I go on to say, well, you're not perfect either, so this may just be a perfect fit. (laughs) There is no perfect church. There is only a perfect Savior. Yet God is pleased to use an imperfect church for his own glory and for his own purposes. And he continues to reform and to sanctify us. And we are to grow in our holiness. And that is what Peter's been talking about in this first chapter, that we are to be holy. That we're to be holy in our mind and in our thoughts. We're to be holy in our conduct. And as we'll see today, we're also to be holy in our love. Our love is to be holy unto God and as well as unto one another. And if the word of God is within us, then it needs to be producing that new life and that new holiness and even that new love for God and one another. And so we'll look at that this morning in two points. First, the living and enduring word. Second, the living and enduring love. First, the living and enduring word. And briefly, just again, the context. As I said, Peter has been putting forward that we must be holy, that we are called to be separated and distinct. And that is to begin in our mind. The battleground for holiness is won or lost in the mind. And then that carries over into our lives. That we are not to be conformed to the ways of this world nor to our former ways, living in the passions or ignorance which we once did. But rather, there is to be a clear distinction between us and the rest of the world, those that are not Christians. Not because we're trying to be better than them or more holy than them in a sense, but there is to be a difference in the way that we think, in the way that we act, the way that we live and speak. We are to be holy in our conduct. Because our chief aim is to ultimately glorify God. And therefore, that is why Peter said, as we looked last week, that we are to be holy, for God is holy. Even as he quotes Leviticus there in verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to resemble our heavenly Father. Now remember, just for a moment, who Peter is writing to. He is writing to exiles that are living in a pagan culture. Sometimes we have this false notion that those that 
the New Testament writers were writing to were in this kind of Christian culture. And that life for them would have been easier to live this life of holiness in their current culture. That is not the truth. In fact, in many ways, their culture was worse than ours. I think any reader of Peter's epistle would have traded places with us in a heartbeat. They were dealing with, in this first century Roman context, overt paganism. They were dealing with persecution. Now, I know we can look at our culture and see all the different problems, but we are not dealing with any of those things, at least overtly. And yet, notice that Paul's or Peter's call to holiness is not diminished because of their cultural context. He doesn't say that just because you have the threat of being persecuted, well, then you can just kind of ease off on that holiness. Ease off on that separated way that you are living. If it's going to cause problems and conflicts, well then, just try to kind of hide it a little bit. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says that even all the more. We are to live in a way that stands out. In fact, in verse 17, he says we're to conduct ourselves. Or he's writing to the, as he writes to the readers, you are to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Notice that. Conduct yourself with fear. Fear of what? Well, not fear of those that are doing the persecuting. Not even fear of being exiles. Rather, fear of God. Rather, fear of the Father, as it says there in verse 17, who judges. As Peter puts that before them, he's saying, listen, you need to give an account. Not to the people that are living around you. Not to the ones that are persecuting you. You're to give an account to God himself. And therefore the Lord, the Father above, must loom larger than any of the pressures that you are personally dealing with in this life. And Jesus says something very similar, does he not? He says, do not fear those that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That we're to have a greater fear towards God than fear towards man. R.C. Sproul tells the story of when he was a young pastor that one of his great mentors, the Dr. John Gerstner, was to come and to hear him preach. And he said that as a young pastor that was just beginning, this was very intimidating for his great mentor, the one that he respected so much to to come and hear him. And so before the service, he told Dr. Gerstner of his anxiety and his nervousness for him to be there that day. To which Dr. Gerstner replied, why should you find it daunting to preach in the presence of man? It is God who listens to every word you say. Notice what he's saying there. He's saying, do not fear any man. Your fear is misplaced. You ultimately only have an audience of one, no matter who you preach to. And if your God is big, as big as we say that he is, as reformed Christians, as powerful and as sovereign as he is, that makes everything else small, including other people, even ourselves. But too often we don't 
live that way, do we? We often live like others are big. And God is small. And so we fear our situations. We fear things in this life. We become intimidated. We have this fear or or feeling that we must kind of compromise, that we must fit in so that, that we don't stand out so greatly. And I think what Peter would say in this passage, the Holy Spirit would say to us, is that if we have this knowledge of who God is, And if we truly trust him as our Lord and our God, if we truly believe that he is as awesome as he is, then nothing compares to him. And as a result, if we fear God, the fear of man is lessened. And so how is it that we have this type of fear? How is it that we are to have this reverence of God on a daily basis? How are we to honor him with our lives and conduct our lives in that sense of being reminded of who he is, to live our lives quorum Deo before the face of God? Well, it goes back to a very simple principle, a very simple but profound principle. It goes back to what Jesus told us, that we are to love God, to love our neighbor. In fact, Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Love God and love our neighbor. And so what does that mean? What does that practically look like? What does it mean to really love God? Well, again, Jesus tells us, does he not? In John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, or by keeping my commandments, this is how you demonstrate your love towards me, that we are to obey God's word, that that is the chief and ultimate way that we show our love and our dedication and reverence and fear towards God. And to do so, we must be reminded, as Peter points us to, of this aspect of his word, that it's obedience to his word, that God's word comes from God. That's why it's called God's word. It's a simple but profound truth. And since it comes from God, it carries all the authority and weight of God. As you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had the, the chaplains here, many of which were military chaplains. And it's something that military people know implicitly. If you served in the military, currently serving in the military, or know those that, that do, you know that in the military, if a command comes from a superior off, officer, that command is to be followed without question. And that is, in a sense, instilled from the very first moments of basic training. And if you don't learn that basic principle, then life as a soldier will be very miserable. And most likely you won't be a soldier for long at all. And so if we were to be soldiers of the cross, we need to learn that very basic principle, do we not? That God's word comes from God. It comes from the superior officer, that there is no greater rank than God himself. That he is the king of kings. That he is the lord of lords. That that word represents him. It has all the authority of his being. And think for a moment how powerful God's word is. That God's word has the power 
to create. As we think back to the creation, the catechism says that the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power. By the word of his power, he made all things out of nothing. That he spoke and it came into being. Mountains and rivers and other universes. From the tiniest particles to the greatest galaxies came forth because of God's word. God speaking forth. God has the power to make realities come into existence. That's how powerful his word is. And his word also has the power to give life. Again, think about Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. In fact, he's been dead for three days. So Lazarus is dead as dead can be. And he comes to the grave. And what does he do? The one who spoke creation into existence calls forth Lazarus. Says, Lazarus, come forth. And the reality that moments before was not. The reality of his life that was gone from his body now suddenly enters back in. And this man who is dead comes alive by the word of his power. By his word, there is life. And it's that same word that brought Jesus Christ forth from the dead that brings forth life into our souls as well. Just as Jesus said to Lazarus, Arise, come forth, and live. So he says to each and every one of us, Come and receive the life. And he breathes new life into our dead souls. To our hell-bound, hell-deserving souls. He breathes new, eternal life. No doubt he has done that for you this day. And if he has not done that for you, then would it be today, perhaps... Jesus would say to you, come forth, you dead sinner, arise and live. Receive the everlasting and eternal life. First, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that he made us alive together with Christ. He did so by his word, the word of God brings forth life because it unites us with the word of life. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is talking about here. Again, as he says in verse 23, we are born again. We are given this life. And as he goes on to say, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. That we are born again of the word. And he gives this wonderful metaphor. I love this metaphor of the imperishable seed. If you've ever looked at seed, perhaps some of you are gardeners. A seed doesn't look like much, does it? It looks dead, it looks dry, it looks shriveled up. But when you plant it and put it into the ground, wow, life comes forth. And flowers and fruits. And Peter is likening that seed analogy to the word of God. When you look at the Word of God, if you look at your Bibles that you have in front of you, it looks just very dry, doesn't it? Like a dead book. It looks like it's just in in black and white. But as the Holy Spirit takes that Word and plants it into the soul, 
he brings forth life. In fact, he brings forth more life than any fruit or flower tree can bear. Because why? Every flower or every fruit will bring forth life, but then, as you know, it will die. It is a perishable seed. But Peter says here, this is an imperishable seed. There's something that takes place in your soul that will never die. That will bring forth eternal life. And so this word is everlasting. This word is eternal. And that's why he quotes Isaiah 40 here, right? As we read earlier, that the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That all of life compared to the word of God is like a flower of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. But if that imperishable seed is planted in the soul, even though the life from the body may die, there is another life, a greater life. And that life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ that he gives to us by his word. And so again, he is establishing the truth of his word, that it endures forever, that we would put our lives, that we bank our lives upon that word, that we give obedience to that, that we wouldn't obey the word of this world or the thoughts of this world or even our own thoughts, but we would obey the thoughts of God because it's that word that endures forever. It's that word that gives life. It's to that word that we are to obey because that word is far greater. As he says there again in verse 23, it's that word that is living and abiding. That's the living and abiding word of God. And we see what this means in practice when we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think again with me at the time of his temptation. It says that Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And the scriptures go on to say that he was hungry. That is one of the great understatements of the scripture. He was literally dying of hunger. And so what does Satan do in his temptation? He comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread. Fulfill that hunger. Fulfill your need that you have. You're the one that created it all. You can so easily create these stones into bread that can nourish you. Satisfy your fleshly desires. Fulfill that longing. And how does Jesus respond to that? He responds, first of all, with the word of God, with each one of those temptations. But specifically, with that temptation, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice what Jesus is saying there. Life is not contained in that bread. Life is not contained in the substance that we are given. Life is not even contained in the body itself. Life is contained in God. Life is contained in obedience, in obedience to his word. And listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the word that we preach. This life-giving word. I know it's so easy sometimes just to, to hear this scripture or hear any scripture or hear any biblical teaching and go, that's, that's great. And moments later, just forget it. Or, or, or have this attitude of kind of like, well, uh, leave it or take it. No, what we are preaching forth here is the word of life. It's the word of the everlasting God who is life. 
And so we hang upon every word, just like we would come to the meal, as we would come to the table and we would eat, because we know that through eating that provides life for us, we would come to the scriptures with that same type of hunger. And we would say, this is where I find life. This is where I find everlasting and eternal life given to me through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit. That's where we have right reverence for God and right obedience to his word. Life is not having our flesh fulfilled. It's doing what God has commanded. And so what Jesus says in that temptation, don't miss it. He says to Satan, I would rather die of starvation than disobey my father. I will be obedient to him, even unto death, even if this fleshly desire is never fulfilled. And so that is why we preach the scriptures. Not because it's this old book, not just because we're trying to steep ourselves in tradition. We preach this book because this is where life is found. Again, R.C. Sproul gives such a wonderful uh, word or testimony to this. It says, the Bible does give us a blueprint for reaching the loss and for generating spiritual growth among the people of God. It's a blueprint that God guarantees will not be fruitless. It is accomplished by the method of proclaiming the word of God, which Peter says here, changes lives and purifies souls through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter says and concludes this little portion here, this is the word that is preached to you. This is the word that is good news to our souls. Because through this word, we receive Christ. And Christ is implanted in us, in a sense, like that seed, that imperishable seed that bounds forth to new life. So we have the living and abiding word. Second, we have then the living and abiding love. If this word is living and abiding in us, then it will be chiefly demonstrated in our love. Our love for God, as we just mentioned, but also our love for one another. And those two things cannot be separated. They always go together. There's always the necessity of love. Why? Because if we are being made like Christ, if we're being made into the image of Christ, then we will be made like Christ. And what is one of the greatest attributes of Christ? One of the greatest attributes of Christ was that he was a man of love. That he loved and demonstrated that love. And he continues to do so this day. John 13, 1 saying, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself for the church because of that love. So it's a contradiction to say that I love Christ, but that I don't love that which he loves. If you love God and love Christ, then you also love the church. You also love his bride, which is the apple of his eye. Even as Christ Love the church. And Christ doesn't love some abstract church, some hypothetical church. Yes, God loves the universal, universal, invisible church, but God also loves the visible church. God loves this church, Smyrna Presbyterian Church. He loves it, problems and all. And praise God because you are a part of the problem. <laughs> right? You bring in your sin. And your problems, don't we? 
And isn't it a wonderful demonstration of his grace and mercy? God never says to his people, you don't belong here. Go away, clean yourself up, and when you have perfected yourself, then come and join yourself. No. Jesus came to save sinners. The church is for sinners. And as the old statement goes, he saves us where we are, but he doesn't keep us where we're at. He continues to sanctify us and grow us in holiness, even as we've been looking at the last two weeks. But one of the main areas where that will be demonstrated is in our love. As he says there, that there will be a truth for a sincere brotherly love to love one another earnestly with a pure heart. John in 1 John goes on to say something even more bold. He says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That we demonstrate our love for God by loving one another. Having that sincere and honest and eager and brotherly, familial love towards each other in the church. But that's the, one of the chief ways that we demonstrate our love towards God. As Luther once said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And the same goes for our love. God doesn't need our love. He desires our love. He wants our love, but he does not need our love. But your brothers and sisters in Christ do need your love. And it's sinful for us not to demonstrate that love towards each other. And we demonstrate it through our good works, through our deeds of charity, through our actions of love, through our words of encouragement and support. It must. That love isn't primarily just emotion. That we don't love our spouses by just having this this gush of emotion that just fills our hearts. No, we ultimately show our love for our spouses by our words and by our deeds. And that's the same thing that goes for the church, that we are part of the word and deed ministry. That is how we are proving our love towards one another. And how tragic it would be for a church not to have true love, a genuine love, a love that flows over to its community, and to its world. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you do not have love, you do not have anything. That you can do the, the, the greatest of works, and yet it's less than nothing. It's meaningless. You can't do ministry. You can't have church without love. It's like trying to bake a cake or bread without using flour. It's like trying to drive a car but have no gas, right? That which is the essence of what we're called to is love. Lord willing, I want us to come back to that next week and think about this, how God calls us to love, as he says here, to love sincerely with a brotherly love and earnestly. That the church must be characterized by love. And as I close this morning, let me just say in so many ways that this church should be commended for so many things, but chiefly in its love. 
I have not experienced a church that has loved in the way that this church has loved. We personally as a family can testify to your love for us during this season. A season that has been challenging and difficult. And we so appreciate your acts of love. That they have been felt. And we've known the love of God through your love for us. And I can tell you that it is provided for us through this season. And so praise God for that. And I'm certain that so many of you can testify to the same thing. That when you needed your church the most, they were there for you. And allow us, when you do face those difficulties and those circumstances, for the church to minister to you. To let them show your acts of love towards you. Through this, we show our love to God. Through our love for one another. And in that way, we have a witness to a world that is watching. To a world that really, truly doesn't understand true love. They only know a love that takes. A love that puts self first. They do not know anything of a selfless love. May they see in us, in the church, true love. And may it give us an opportunity to point to the one who is love. The one that is the true word. The true word of God at work in us. Truly, that is the good news that is preached. That is the good news that is at work within us. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would bring that word and plant that seed and that we would grow in our love towards God and one another. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your blessing and for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have shown your love to us through the love of others, through the love of our family, it be our um, direct family or for, through our church family. Lord, we pray that uh, we would abound in gifts of love towards one another. And Lord, that we would do so because we love you just as you have loved us and given your son for us. We thank you for it. In Christ Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.